Greetings from Florida with Joe Torino is explicit in every way. Listener discretion is advised. from Florida folks. I'm your host Joe Torino and welcome back for episode six. Uh, today we're going to be continuing our Florida's Most Haunted series with a look at one of the most haunted hotels in Florida, uh, the historic Biltmore Hotel, which is located in Coral Gables, Florida. But before we get started on the last episode, I gave some information on a few organizations uh, where you can make a donation to help those across the state who were affected by Hurricane Ian. Um, I was able to find a few other resources and organizations that are assisting with the recovery effort, and uh, I went ahead and posted the links to them uh, over on the show's website, www.floridapod.com, just so that you can have the list all in one place. Um, This is a way uh, you can read a little bit about each of the organizations and you can determine uh, which one you want to make a donation to. Like I said last week, there are a lot of people who have lost everything and in some cases, even family members. Um, So please try to help out in any way that you can. Uh, I also wanted to mention that I am in no way affiliated with any of these organizations. And I just want to do my part uh, to try to help out my uh, fellow Floridians um, who are hurting right now. And, you know, with your help, I'm hoping that all of these folks will be able to get back into their homes and businesses quickly and that these cities will be able to rebuild back uh, bigger and better than ever. I also wanted to give a big shout out to all of the men and women who have volunteered, all the first responders and emergency personnel from all over the state and beyond who have been working around the clock to help with the cleanup, um, searching for survivors and overall the attempt to try to give some people some comfort you know, um, over in Fort Myers, Cape Coral, Sanibel, all of those areas who, you know, are going through this difficult time right now. So I just want to say thank you, all of you, for everything that you do, and yet your hard work is very appreciated. All right, let's uh, let's head down to Coral Gables. <laughs> The story of the Biltmore Hotel begins with the dream of the man who designed and founded the city of Coral Gables. George Edgar Merrick was the son of the Reverend Solomon Greasley Merrick, a congregational minister and abolitionist, and his wife, Althea Fink. The Merricks moved their family from Duxbury, Massachusetts to the Miami area in 1899 after the harsh Northeast winter claimed the life of one of George's twin sisters. As a result of this family tragedy, Reverend Merrick took his life savings and purchased a 160-acre tract of land west of Coconut Grove for the price of $1,100, sight unseen, and the family set out for a fresh start in what they called a brand new city 
where the sun always shined. But when George and the good reverend arrived at their new homestead, they found a mostly uncleared tract with only scattered guava trees and a crude wooden cabin. The two quickly got to work to prepare for the arrival of Mrs. Merrick and the other four children, Ethel, Medi, Helen, and Charles. The Merricks would later have another child, Richard, the only family member to be born in Coral Gables. Reverend Merrick and George, who were aided by Bohemian workers, worked day and night clearing their land of pine and palmetto trees. They then planted grapefruit and avocado trees and also grew award-winning green beans, peppers, guava, tomatoes, eggplant, and okra. George, who was 13 at the time, would take the vegetables by mule and cart to Miami, where he would sell them. In 1906, as the groves began to bear fruit, the family was able to ship the first carload of grapefruits out of Miami to the northern market. Their new prosperity allowed the Merricks to construct an extensive addition to their wooden cottage, and they officially named their new home Coral Gables, and their growing grapefruit groves the Coral Gables Plantation. George Merrick enrolled in Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida in 1907, and then entered New York Law School in 1908. However, his studies were cut short when his father Solomon became ill in 1909, and George came home to help manage the plantation. Solomon Merrick died in 1911, leaving George in charge of the family and the business. By 1920, George Merrick had expanded his land from 160 acres to 1,600 acres. By this time, he had been involved in promoting and selling at least 15 subdivisions in the Miami area, but now he had the land, expertise, and money to move forward with his plans for creating a city of his own design. He assembled a team of architects, artists, and engineers, and by 1921, the future city of Coral Gables was wholly mapped out on paper. The first lots were sold later that year. Merrick funded the endeavor himself, but he began to run low on funds pretty quickly. He went from bank to bank seeking backers, but was turned away every time. However, help came completely by accident when Merrick ran into an old college friend named Jack Baldwin. By then, Baldwin had opened up an insurance office in Miami. The two men caught a train to Baldwin's home office, and there, Merrick convinced the company to finance the construction of 100 homes. The city was incorporated on April 29, 1925. Much of Coral Gables was built between 1921 and 1926. By October 1926, Coral Gables boasted more than 4,000 structures, including 2,792 private homes and apartments, 112 office and commercial buildings, 11 schools, 10 public buildings, 2 hospital buildings, 2 university buildings, and 6 hotels. 100 miles of street have been paved and 125 miles of sidewalks had been built. Several significant structures were built during the construction boom and the city's architecture is almost entirely Mediterranean style with an emphasis on Spanish influence in particular. The Congregational Church was the first church in Coral Gables and was built on land donated by George Merrick to honor his father. The domed Catholic Church of the Little Flower was built somewhat later in a similar Spanish Renaissance style. 
George Merrick also paid for the construction of Coral Gables Elementary School in 1924, and George's brother Charles constructed the Granada and Alhambra entrances to the city. But the crown jewel of Merrick's Coral Gables would be the Miami Biltmore Hotel. In 1925, George Merrick combined forces with the Biltmore Hotel magnate John McKinty Bowman at the height of the Florida land boom to build what was described as a great hotel, which would not only serve as a hostelry to crowds which were thronging to Coral Gables, but also would serve as a center of sports and fashion. Bowman, who was the genius behind the Biltmore Hotel chain in such cities as New York, Los Angeles, and Havana, Cuba, which was well known for taking good care of their wealthy patrons. Bowman knew that he would attract the people with money offering a palace-like structure with all the bells and whistles and amenities that the who's who of society would expect and appreciate. Bowman contracted with renowned architect Leonard Schultz and contractor and developer S. Fullerton Weaver, and on November 25, 1924, 200 of Miami's business and civic leaders as well as the press gathered for a dinner to celebrate the new partnership. Bowman announced that the $10 million project would include a 400-room hotel, a country club, a service building, a championship golf course designed by premier golf course architect Donald Ross, polo fields, tennis courts, and an enormous 150 by 225-foot swimming pool. Ten months later, on January 15, 1926, the Biltmore Country Club opened with a magnificent gala that promised to be the social event of the year. The leading socialites of the Northeast came down on trains marked Miami Biltmore Specials, and as the champagne flowed and the guest fox trotted to the sounds of three orchestras, the Biltmore's Geralda Tower was lit for the first time and could be seen from miles around. An overflow crowd of 1,500 guests attended the opening dinner dance, and a landmark era in South Florida history began. The Biltmore quickly became one of the most fashionable resorts in the entire country, hosting royalty both of the European and Hollywood variety. The Duke and Duchess of Windsor, Ginger Rogers, Babe Ruth, Judy Garland, and Bing Crosby were frequent guests. In fact, Everyone who was anyone from politicians like President Franklin D. Roosevelt to notorious gangsters like Al Capone stayed at the Biltmore. Guests enjoyed fashion shows, gala balls, aquatic shows in the 23,000 square foot grand pool, elaborate weddings and world-class golf tournaments. And with the jazz age in full swing, the Biltmore's big band entertained wealthy, well-traveled visitors to the resort. But just months after the hotel opened, the 1926 Miami hurricane struck on September 18th. The hotel was undamaged and provided shelter for over 2,000 survivors, but the disaster signaled the end of the Florida land boom. A short time later, George Merrick fell into heavy debt and his Coral Gables company declared bankruptcy on April 13, 1929. His stake in the hotel was bought out by his partner, John McKinty Bowman, in November 1929 for $2.1 million and was later resold on September 1931 to millionaire Henry Latham Doherty. When the hard financial times of the Depression hit Florida, 
A large part of the hotel's revenue came from the aquatic galas. As many as 3,000 people would come out on a Sunday afternoon to watch the synchronized swimmers, bathing beauties, alligator wrestling, and the four-year-old boy wonder Jackie Ott, whose act included diving into the immense pool from an 85-foot-high platform. Johnny Weismuller was a swim instructor and broke a world record at the pool before he was known for his role as Tarzan. During Prohibition, the private and secure 13th floor Everglades Suite, also known as the Al Capone Suite, became the perfect place for a speakeasy and gambling joint for the entertainment of the hotel's guests and wealthy people from Miami. It operated under the supervision of a local mobster and gambler named Edward Wilson and two gangsters, Thomas Fatty Walsh and his friend Arthur Clark, who both had left New York City two steps ahead of the law. Wilson leased the 13th and 14th floor of the Biltmore's Geralda Tower and partnered with Fatty in this endeavor, with Arthur helping Fatty. With the onset of World War II, the Biltmore fell in hard times and was sold to the federal government. The War Department then converted the Biltmore to a huge 1,200-bed hospital, dubbed the Army Air Forces Regional Hospital, and later renamed to the Pratt General Hospital. Adapting the building to its new use, the Army sealed many of the former hotel's windows with concrete and covered the travertine floors with layers of government-issued linoleum. The hospital had a functional operating theater, an ER clinic, and a morgue. The hospital later transferred to the Veterans Administration, which is the VA, in July 1947. It also became the early site of the University of Miami School of Medicine. Pratt General Hospital remained a VA hospital with 450 beds until a newer facility opened nearby in May 1968, when the building was vacated and left abandoned. In 1973, following intense lobbying by Coral Gables officials and city residents for the Biltmore's acquisition, the city of Coral Gables was granted ownership of the hotel through the Historic Monuments Act and Legacy of Parks program. But the city remained undecided as to the structure's future, and the Biltmore remained unoccupied for almost 10 years. Finally, in 1983, the city initiated a full restoration of the Biltmore to its former glory as a grand hotel. Nearly four years and $55 million later, the Biltmore reopened on December 31, 1987 as a luxury hotel and resort. More than 600 guests turned out to honor the historic Biltmore at a black tie affair. The hotel remained open for three years but closed again in 1990 in the midst of the country's economic downturn. In 1992, the Biltmore would be operated by the Seaway Hotels Corporation, a Florida-based hotel management firm. With the hotel under new management, Seaway embarked on a 10-year, $40 million renovation program to restore the Biltmore back to its former glory. Today, the 273-room Biltmore is indeed as elegant and luxurious as the day it opened, and continues to attract guests and visitors from all over the world for a chance to experience the opulence and grandeur for themselves. But while most guests eventually leave, it seems that some of the guests of the Biltmore never really checked out, at least not in the traditional way. But before we continue, 
We're going to pause here for a short break. Ghost stories are always scarier when they're told by the very people who experience them. Hi, I'm Becky. And I'm Diana. And we're the hosts of the Homespun Haints podcast. We talk to people just like you who've come face to face with ghosts, demons, haints, and other strange paranormal phenomena. All of it makes for a chilling good time. So grab yourself a sweet tea, turn off the lights, and listen to some eerie, true ghost stories on Homespun Haints wherever you get your podcasts. I'm not scared. Are you? Welcome back to the show, guys. Now let's meet the spirits of the Biltmore. The Biltmore Hotel is known to be home to several different spirits, and over the years, both guests and employees have reported their fair share of ghostly experiences all over the property. This really shouldn't come as a surprise given how many people must have died here when it was a wartime hospital. Some of the earliest accounts of paranormal activity come from the 10 years that the Biltmore was vacant. People who drove by the hotel or who would be walking on the golf course behind the hotel used to see the windows open and close by themselves and would often see mysterious lights coming from the windows. They also heard the sounds of music coming from the old hotel. Officials believed that real people must be the culprits and appropriate action was planned. 14 police officers and two detectives, as well as police dogs, were sent into the abandoned hotel to search for trespassers. They couldn't find any living person during their search, but that doesn't mean that they were alone in the building. The officers reported that they heard breaking glass, witnessed the windows on the top floor open and close by themselves, and also saw phantom apparitions fleeing down the hallways. It was also reported that their dogs sensed the entities and ran out of the hotel. And ever since the hotel reopened, guests, especially those staying on the seventh floor, have reported doors opening and closing on their own, lights turning on and off even when unplugged, and the sound of knocking on their room doors with no one there when they would go and check. Guests have also been awoken by strange sounds, only to see male entities dressed in hospital gowns looking at them. These entities have also been seen wandering the hallways, sometimes floating above the ground. A few people have also described being tapped on the shoulder by ghostly figures wearing soldiers' uniforms. One of the more disturbing claims is that of a former employee who had seen several limbs manifest through the walls, while another claimed that even hardened security officers from the property couldn't take much of the paranormal encounters on this floor and would quit right alongside a concierge who resigned as well. The spirit of a woman wearing a red dress has also been witnessed in the bar downstairs. It's said that she looks at the piano player with a mile-long stare, only to vanish the very second the musician stops playing. A transparent couple has also been seen dancing in one of the ballrooms, and they would vanish into thin air in front of any living witnesses. A ghost was seen wearing a top hat playing the piano in the country club building, and there are also reports of babies crying through the walls, noises from a party that wasn't happening, and of guests coming to the front desk only to vanish when the clerk comes to their aid. At one point, hotel housekeepers routinely wore sage pinned to their lapels to ward off numerous ghosts haunting the many floors of the Biltmore. 
One of the most witnessed apparitions is the Lady in White. According to legend, the Biltmore Hotel's Lady in White is the spirit of a woman whose young child somehow climbed over a high balcony railing outside of her room. Sadly, she could not catch the child before they both fell to their deaths. There's another version of the legend that says she was stabbed to death by a stranger while out walking with her child. This sad entity is said to linger in some of the tower suites, wandering the halls, and sometimes even sitting on guest beds. She has also been seen on the exterior hotel balconies, as well as wandering throughout the grounds, supposedly looking for her child. But perhaps the most infamous ghost to inhabit the Biltmore is that of gangster Thomas Fatty Walsh. During the Prohibition era, the 13th floor tower suite known as the Everglade Suite or sometimes the Al Capone Suite was turned into a speakeasy and casino that was being run by gangsters Edward Wilson and Fatty Walsh, as well as his friend Arthur Clark. Besides enjoying a good cigar, Fatty truly loved to party. He enjoyed the excitement that came with his business, and all of the lovely ladies too. He was considered to be a good-natured soul in life, but just like a lot of us, he had some personal weaknesses that got him into trouble with his partner Edward, who was not a forgiving man. On Friday, March 13th, 1929, an argument erupted between Wilson and Fatty. Wilson then shot Fatty in front of the suite's large fireplace. More than 90 years later, a bullet hole can still be seen in the fireplace. In the 1970s, a seance was held in the Everglades suite, where contact with Fatty was said to be established. Paranormal investigators focusing on the 13th floor have allegedly seen shadowy representations of the gangster. There have been reports of heavy breathing following them around and even loud sighs heard on their recordings. The spirit of Fatty Walsh is described as friendly and playful. Reports from the Everglades suite often involve his ghost playing tricks on guests or staff with lights and doors, odd chuckling sounds that emanate from nowhere, and an unseen finger has been seen writing the word boo on steamed up bathroom mirrors. Some guests have also reported seeing the reflection of a smiling man of portly size in the bathroom mirrors standing behind them, only to turn and see nobody there. It is also said that he likes to help out on the elevators, he goes to the restaurants on occasion, and still enjoys the company of the living, especially women. One couple staying at the hotel claimed they pushed the elevator button for the fourth floor but were unexpectedly taken to the 13th floor instead, even though a keycard is needed to enter this floor. The woman stepped out, and the doors suddenly shut behind her. The elevator set off, taking her husband back to the lobby. He quickly returned to the 13th floor with staff, only to find his wife waiting there, terrified. She claimed that she heard footsteps followed by talking and laughter and smelled cigar smoke. Who knows, maybe Fatty was just lonely. I mean, he always did like the ladies. All right, and that's it for episode six, uh, the Biltmore Hotel. 
truly a beautiful place. I've been lucky to have gone there several times uh, while I lived in Miami. I've been to numerous uh, wedding receptions there. Uh, the Church of the Little Flower across the street is also really, really a beautiful little church. Um, and uh, when I was really young, uh, when it had almost when it first reopened, uh, my family actually used to go there for brunch on occasion on Sundays. And uh, I just remember walking into that place, even as a little kid, just looking, just being like, wow, like this is this is amazing. So if you ever get a chance to come down to Miami or if you live in the South Florida area, do yourself a favor. Go check out the Biltmore. It is truly a beautiful location. And who knows, maybe uh, you might have a little run in yourself with uh, some of the uh, spirits that are said to still be there. Uh, thank you very much for listening to this episode. And please remember to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying this show, the best way to show your support is to rate and leave a review as it really helps others find the show on various streaming platforms. You can also show your support by sharing the show with your family, friends, and coworkers. Go follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at FloridaPod, where I will be posting photos to go along with each episode. You can also join the new Facebook group where you and other listeners can discuss previous episodes, get show-related announcements, and suggest future topics that you want covered. You can find the links to these pages at www.flowirdapod.com. Thank you to Modern Mimes for creating the awesome music for the show. Go check out their music on Apple Music, Spotify, and pretty much everywhere else that you purchase or stream your music. Go follow them on Instagram and Facebook at Modern Mimes, and go check out their music videos over on their YouTube channel. They're currently on tour, so please visit their website, www.modernmimes.com, for tour dates and ticket information, as well as band merch. Go show them some support if they are playing in your city or in a city near you. Have you ever wanted to go on a real-life paranormal investigation? Tis the season, after all. Go check out www.warpartyparanormal.com for dates and ticket information for all of our upcoming public interactive paranormal investigations where you will get a chance to know and investigate with me and uh, the rest of the War Party Paranormal crew at some of the most historic and haunted locations throughout South Florida. All proceeds from the tickets to these events go right back to these locations to help with the historical preservation and maintenance. And if you are experiencing paranormal occurrences in your own home or business, War Party Paranormal specializes in residential cases and has helped hundreds of clients throughout Florida. All of our residential cases are completely confidential and 100% free, so please feel free to contact us and our case manager will reach out to you as soon as possible. And don't forget to tune in every Monday night at 9 p.m. Eastern Time to the War Party Paranormal Radio Show where co-host team leader Eric Vanderlaan and case manager Mike Del Coro, as well as various team members, not only discuss the locations where we've investigated, but we also share the evidence captured from them. The show also features special guest investigators and celebrities from some of your favorite paranormal television shows, so go check it out. You can find the show on the KGRA Digital Broadcasting Network website and YouTube channel, as well as on the War Party Paranormal Facebook page and YouTube channel. We'll be back next week for episode 7 of Greetings from Florida as we continue our Florida's Most Haunted series. Uh, but until then, 
who wants to book a room at the Biltmore with me? I definitely feel that this is a place that I need to get into investigate immediately. Um, and I'm not going to lie. I kind of want to party with Fatty Walsh. I don't know about you, but I know that I do. And of course, stay weird, Florida. See you next time.